Welcome to Stronger Than Reason. So let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, there was no widely available internet, but we still had cat videos. I mean, we weren't savages after all, but we had to record our cat videos onto videotape, and it was pretty difficult to share them with the world. And the fact of the matter is that no one really wanted to watch them. But we did have this thing back in that day called MTV, and that was the primary way that young people, like myself at the time, learned about exciting new musical combos. Now, while I was at this tender, impressionable age, I remember seeing one video in particular that was so strange and surreal that it really stuck with me. And it actually disturbed me in a bit, not in a bad way, but in a way that left me with a lot of unanswered questions. So if it was a joke, I wasn't in on the joke. Uh, and that's a weird feeling to have, right? It can be a little upsetting. And that was strange in that early spoon-fed world of MTV. It was something different. Normally, everything in a music video was self-evident. You know, MTV was dumbed-down entertainment, pure and simple. But this video really baffled me. It was inexplicable, inaccessible. I didn't really understand what I was hearing or seeing. In short, it was challenging, and it was experimental, and it wasn't easily digestible. It had something more going on. And it also had a unique sound. It was clearly artificial, but it was dancey and almost jazzy, and it was approaching, dare I say it, art. So what was this video? Uh, in short, it featured a little girl done up like a punk rock chick with her spiky hair, scary makeup and torn clothes, like a little Madonna or Cyndi Lauper at the time. And she was hanging out by some railroad tracks, as you do, sort of in a junkyard. And she was with these three guys in suits who had power tools. And she was directing them to destroy a bunch of musical instruments. And... Eventually, this wiener dog shows up, and they all beat up a piano together and destroy it, and that's really it, and it's all done in sync with this sort of artificial, strange, instrumental song. And I, I couldn't help but like this as a kid. It really captured my imagination. Uh, it was just uh, confusing. <laughs> you know, why was this little girl in charge, and why was she dressed like that, and why are they destroying instruments? And why does the one guy who looks like Van Halen's Michael Anthony always seem to be smiling creepily? I had so many questions. Anyway, I buried this nugget in my subconscious and kept it there pretty much through middle school. And it wasn't until much later when I was in high school, and this must have been around 1989 or 1990, that I was at my local music store browsing around. And I came upon a cassette by this band, The Art of Noise. And it triggered, in my mind, an association with wiener dogs. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't understand that at first. I was like, wiener dogs? What the hell? Why does this band have anything to do with wiener dogs? And I looked at the track list, and there it was, this song that I remember seeing the video for, and it had a really strange name. It was Close to the Edit with the to the edit part in parentheses, of course. It wasn't close to the edge, it was close to the edit. And that triggered the rest of the memory. Um, the weird video and the song, and I remembered the band, The Art of Noise. So, needless to say, I bought this tape immediately, and here it is, this cassette copy. Uh, the album was the best of The Art of Noise. And I, I do have this on CD, it's just not accessible at the moment. Strangely, the tape was more accessible than the CD, so that's what I'm showing you here. But, yeah. Um, to be clear, you know, I, I did buy the blue version of this album um, on cassette, and this happens to have all of the 12-inch mixes of these tracks. And I'm pretty sure that other editions of the blue Best Of had the 7-inch mixes. Maybe that was just on vinyl. I don't know. Maybe it was more a question of, you know, being able to fit in that space. But let's just say that Art of Noise was a band that produced a tremendous number of versions of every release with tons of barely distinguishable remixes. 
Um, this release here was maybe the most commercial of theirs in the sense that it was most likely to show up in my local suburban Nowheresville music store in the late 80s. And it was obviously a compilation that packaged up the most palatable of their big hits. So I took this thing home and listened to it, and sure enough, I could recognize a few tracks. Uh, in fact, you could argue that for the first part of their career, The Art of Noise had just three landmark tracks. And I'm going to refer to these throughout this episode as the big three tracks, right? The first was a song called Beatbox, which was a fairly straight pop number with this huge sampled beat, you know, the old 80s gated reverb. I think Art of Noise might have been one of the first bands to really do that. And it had a lot of sound effects on top of it. And weirdly, there was no one singing this song. Art of Noise had no lead singer. They had no catchy lyrics or refrains. And it wasn't immediately clear how they composed and recorded this thing because the term sampling wasn't widely known in the mid-80s. But that's what this was. It was uh, just one of the first attempts to build an entire song out of bits and pieces of other music, out of samples. And it just happened to become a massive underground hit, especially among the 80s breakdancing scene. So I guess those folks dug the groovy beat, the lack of vocals. You know, it left a lot of space for them to interpret, you know, with dancing, if you know what I mean. So yeah, Beatbox was the first big tune of theirs. The second was a song, which I mentioned before, close to the edit, uh, strongly supported by that really strange video. In fact, that video would go on to win an MTV Video Music Award in 1985. But music-wise, this tune was pretty similar to Beatbox, though with a killer funky bass line and more hooks. And it would be remixed to death. And it was always instantly recognizable by the shout of, hey, and you'd hear that much later in the song Firestarter by The Prodigy in the early 90s. And they would actually give The Art of Noise full writing credit for that tune. They, sam they sampled it so much. So it was a sample of a sample, you know, and so it goes. And there's also a, a sample in the middle of close to the edit uh, that goes tra-la-la, which I'm pretty sure was a sample of the Andrews sisters um, based on some of their earlier compositions, but I'm not 100% sure of that. But Close to the Edit is probably their most iconic and most famous song. Finally, um, what I consider to be their masterpiece, their Pièce de la Résistance, Moments in Love. Uh, that's the third of the big three. This song uh, you know, it would be a, a high watermark maybe in a different direction. So there's no huge beats here. Just really a down-tempo, very sensual song with these synthetic strings. It's, it's really an epic chill-out track. And again, it's been remixed to death by The Art of Noise and others. It appears in endless versions. It was famously played at Madonna's uh, first wedding when she got married to Sean Penn. So it received a lot of publicity back in the day. And it's the kind of sound that bands like Enigma would try to emulate for decades afterwards. And some of these versions and mixes kind of pull it into a smooth jazz or easy listening kind of territory. But I would argue that the version on this best of is flawless. It is among maybe the top five most beautiful recordings of any kind that I have ever heard. Um, its dynamic range, the pacing, the fidelity, the lush but simple production. It's really just a jaw-dropping audiophile recording, and it's just an amazing track. Uh, I know I normally talk first about when I first heard the band and then uh, when I first heard this particular album, but in this case, this was the first album of theirs that I heard, and it wasn't a studio album. But I would argue that it had all the high points of their first album, which was called Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise? Uh, that album did include the big three tracks. And also, let's just point out that the title was a pretty clever play on the Edward Albee play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which itself was a clever play on the song Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Wolf. So I hadn't even listened to the album and was already three deep into meta-contextual references. <laughs> so... Anyway, I'd argue that 
a lot of the rest of that first album was frankly filler. It seemed to me that a lot of the tracks were these short bits that sounded like maybe they could have been incidental music for films or they were just roughly thrown together from samples used elsewhere. And it's pretty evident when you're listening to it the whole way through. There really weren't a lot of musical ideas on that album outside of the big three tracks. And much later, I picked up another compilation called Daft. And this was pretty much a collection of Who's Afraid of the Art of Noise, along with their first release, which was an EP called Into Battle with the Art of Noise, though minus a couple short bits and pieces. Uh, Daft pretty much covered their time with the record label Zang Tum Tum, or ZTT, which only spanned those two releases. But that's kind of getting into the history of the band and peeling back the screen on you know, who these people really were, because it turned out they weren't the people in the video at all. Um, so who were the Art of Noise? Um, let's start by saying that this is a band that was inspired by technology, specifically by the Fairlight Computer Musical Instrument, or CMI. Uh, and this was an early keyboard-driven sampler that was invented in Australia. I mentioned it and a bunch of other episodes. Uh, in fact, I mentioned it in the first episode, the one about Ministry's Twitch, because Al Jorgensen bought a Fairlight in the mid-'80s. and That's really what uh, got his career started with Ministry. But I, I mentioned that Al wasn't the first adopter, so years before that, a few other folks would be the first to buy them in England. The first was John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin, then Peter Gabriel, then Kate Bush, and then Trevor Horn. Now, Trevor had gotten famous in 1979, as you may know, with his band The Buggles, which he formed with the keyboardist Jeff Downs. They had a hit with a little tune called Video Killed the Radio Star. And you might also know that that was the very first video ever played on MTV, which is only appropriate. Uh, so soon after, both of those guys would join Yes, and Trevor would go on to fame as a rock producer. Uh, so yeah, Trevor was the fourth English musician to buy a Fairlight, and the reason why many people weren't snapping these up is that they were incredibly expensive at the time. They were sort of the equivalent of buying a luxury car or maybe a cheap house, and I'm pretty sure that they were packaged up in a big wooden box, and they had a bottle of champagne in there if you actually bought the thing. Um, but Trevor reckoned that he needed to differentiate his productions in some way. And at this point, he had his own production team and was working with bands like Dollar and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Propaganda. And his team included the engineer, Gary Langan, and the keyboardist and arranger, Ann Dudley. And there was another guy knocking about the sessions, who took a shine to the Fairlight and started really experimenting with it and pushing its capabilities. And that was important because the Fairlight didn't really come with a really big user's manual. The user's manual, I understand, was very small. And so it was really up to the individual user to dig into its, its possibilities. And that's what Trevor saw this guy doing. So he hired him to the team and... I have to take a minute here because I pride myself in getting names right. And this guy has a pretty complicated last name. And I did my due diligence. I did my research. And I'm pretty sure I found the correct, the correct pronunciation. And I finally found it in an interview where he pronounces it himself. Uh, so his first name is JJ. And when asked, he pronounces his last name Yenchalik. However, I've seen plenty of interviews where the interviewer pronounces it as it's spelled or how it looks, which is Jezkalek. And J.J. never corrects the interviewers when this happens, which I can only attribute to him being an exceptionally patient and nice guy. Anyway, J.J. came aboard the team as the full-time Fairlight Wrangler. And this is the production team that would produce ABC's The Lexicon of Love and Malcolm McLaren's Duck Rock and Yes's 90125. And you can listen to these albums now and hear the unmistakable bits of what would later become the art of noise. And so the way that started was um, with Gary and JJ. And according to JJ, a funny thing happened while they were working with Yes. 
And I encourage you to search YouTube for JJ interviews because he's a funny guy and you want to you wanna listen to him tell the story. You don't really want to hear all the details from me. So you want to always get it from the source, kids. But in a, in a nutshell, Gary pulled him aside one night and played him a tape of Yes's Alan White playing snare and kick drum patterns. And even though it was really late, Gary convinced JJ to sample these drums into the Fairlight. And he did that, and pretty soon they had a sequenced part It was just a rudimentary beat, and they recorded themselves doing a few other goofy things like saying money and reversing it, and they put it together into a little arrangement and played it for Trevor, and he loved it, and he asked them to continue working on that idea in parallel, and that was the tune that would eventually become close to the edit. So, of course, one thing led to another, and they pulled in Ann Dudley to get some more ideas, And when they had a few songs, Trevor brought in another person, someone with skills in marketing, not so much in music. In fact, this person was a journalist, and his name was Paul Morley. Yeah, he was not a musician at all. And what Paul did was he named the group The Art of Noise after an Italian futurist manifesto. So the Italian futurists were a big thing around this time in the musical world. Uh, Peter Saville would used them as an inspiration for some factory records covers like the one for New Order's Movement. Uh, Saville was into Fortunato de Perro. Uh, Horn actually named his label Zang Tum Tum after a poem that was written by the founder of the Futurist Movement, Filippo Tommaso Marinetti. So yeah, this was in the air at the time. But Anyway, Morley would later become notorious as the bright spark that thought up the Frankie Says Relax t-shirt campaign that some of you may remember. Even I remember that from fifth grade or whatever. And even back then, I thought it was a pretty lame marketing stunt. But yeah, so Art of Noise would go through many incarnations over the years, but its first was with these five people, all of whom would find success for other things uh, rather than just being in this band. This band was always kind of a side hustle, but that didn't really bother them because they purposely designed this band to be faceless. And while they were with ZTT, they didn't appear in photos on the record sleeves, and their names actually were mentioned in the sleeves, but in very tiny type and with very, like, silly text that Paul would write. And they didn't do interviews, and when they did appear, they were usually masked or obfuscated in some way. And Anne later explained this as just being awkward, since they didn't have a singer, and they didn't really have a focal point, and they didn't really want to present themselves as a regular band full of these mythological big personalities. So instead, their sleeves were littered with these strange photos and little sayings, kind of like aphorisms, like, the art of noise, visit the Thames, the art of noise, hold a spanner, the art of noise, do dance and think, the art of noise, ask, what can be done, and the art of noise refuse to blame themselves. (laughs) So yeah, it was kind of pretentious, but that was the point. And frankly, it was a breath of fresh air to anyone who is sick of seeing these airbrushed pictures of Duran Duran. All I can say is, gobs of hickeys with Duran Duran, okay? Does anybody out there get that reference? I hope someone does. If you do, please leave a comment, because it's really funny. Trust me. So let's talk about the Art of Noise's sound. So that's who they were. So let's talk about the music. Um, What did they sound like? As I said, the band was predicated on pushing the boundaries of Trevor's Fairlight. But Trevor and Anne were and are musical geniuses, let's face it. So beyond the raw novelty of sampling, they were the ones who introduced pop arrangements that were compelling enough to make a listener forget that Simon Le Bon was not singing this song. Hey, I'm just going to keep dunking on Duran Duran throughout this episode. But of course, in later years, Anne would become primarily known as an arranger working on countless albums in the 80s and 90s and beyond. She's still doing it today. Uh, and of all the Art of Noise personnel, I, I think She's arguably the most musically gifted, uh, as we'll see, although Trevor's no slouch. Uh, But anyway, their poppy tunes tended to use sampled drums and 
and uh, the drums were made to sound enormous, like I said, through that early 80s gated reverb, and they were pretty much sampling anything and everything, and a lot of bands would go on to do that, but I'd, I'd argue that the Art of Noise were doing that perhaps first, and Depeche Mode famously would really drive the core part of their career by taking that approach to just sampling everything, and you know, records like uh, Some Great Reward and Black Celebration and Music for the Masses. All that stuff is just them sampling, you know, whatever was in the kitchen at the studio, basically. Uh, but yeah, The Art of Noise typically didn't use much in the way of identifiable instrumentation. So the, the songs had a peculiar sound. Uh, one thing that they did use a lot early on was the Fairlight set of preset samples. In particular... They use that orchestra stab that every 80s synth act would use, but Art of Noise arguably used it first. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, just listen to Yes's Owner of a Lonely Heart, especially the instrumental break before the guitar solo. And then listen to Beatbox or a track like A Time for Fear, Who's Afraid? And then listen to PTP's Show Me Your Spine, uh, which was done by Ogre and Al Jorgensen. And it's the same orchestra hit sound in all of these tunes, and I think bands like Lieback made entire careers out of that sound. Uh, anyway, Art of Noise were pretty creative with their sampling, and uh, after listening to a million interviews with these folks, I think their workflow, especially in the early days, broke down like this. So JJ and Gary would record whatever. They would record any sound possible, Gary would do some magic sound design on it. He would add effects to juice them up and so on. Then they'd load them into the Fairlight. And then they would just jam out for hours, laying down different parts with Anne and Trevor guiding the final arrangements. And if you think about it, this was a race, a race of technology. And at the time, the Art of Noise was winning. The rest of the world would eventually catch up to sampling but for now, the Art of Noise were lapping everyone. And other artists were using the Fairlight, but they were using it to accentuate their mostly live recorded parts. And ego really is what prevented them from doing more. But the Art of Noise quickly grasped that the Fairlight could do it all. You know, long before Mars or the KLF, they realized that someone with the right equipment could compose entire pieces out of samples. And at the time, they were one of the very few bands that had that equipment. Um, you know, it was an arms race, and they were winning that race. And eventually, even in, in the matter of a few years, the Fairlight would be so used and overused that Phil Collins himself would feel the need to put a notice on his 1985 hit, No Jacket Required, saying that no Fairlights were used on this record. <laughs> so yeah, eventually this approach would be rendered moot by the march of technology, as we know. So even by the late 80s, electronic bands like Depeche Mode would write entire albums with general-purpose home computers rather than specialized equipment like the Fairlight, and that thing would be rendered a very expensive museum piece. And, of course, nowadays your phone is thousands of times as powerful as a Fairlight, but if you're feeling nostalgic, you can always buy an app or a plug-in for your DAW that emulates its old green screen interface. It's kind of like running a MAME emulator to play old video arcade games. So yeah, let's talk about this album, though, this compilation album, in a bit more detail. Um, and since it's a best of, we're going to end up going through the band's history, at least through the 80s, which to me is the important bit, and we'll talk about the rest of it later check yeah okay so the cover the artwork i dig the cover which is a surrealist take on the virgin mary uh it's very dolly-esque and i love me some salvador dolly this cassette version is actually a, a trimmed edition of the artwork um yeah the the cd and the lp have a bit more going on i have no idea who painted this but i do like it a lot um, I know China Records, when they re-released this album in 1992, they did it with a different track list because they wanted to remove the ZTT-era tracks, which to me kind of defeats the point of an Art of Noise Best Of, but you could recognize that version because it has a pink cover and it has shorter songs and a different track list. But yeah, I always liked this blue version that had the big three ZTT tracks on it. 
with the 12-inch mixes. That was the key. So yeah, let's get into it. Um, the first track on here, this is hilarious. I love taking out cassettes. It's so cool. The first track on here is Opus 4. Um, this is just kind of a short arrangement for several voices that are reciting the poem November by the 19th century English poet Thomas Hood. And this is a track that shows the art of noise, I feel, at their experimental best. So it still presents them as being annoyingly intellectual, but it is a kind of cool little track. It's just a couple of minutes long. And that goes into... That goes, I can't even see where I am on here. That goes into Beatbox to version one. Uh, now, this is the version of Beatbox that appeared on Who's Afraid. It's not to be confused with the original version that appeared on Into Battle, but I, I think this is the definitive version. This one appears in most places, and it's identifiable by the intro, which features a single piano note, and then Anne saying, yeah, oh, oh, no, I don't believe it, before dropping into the song. So it's pretty much a sampling toward a force. But to me, the really mind-blowing bit of beatbox comes at the end, when the normal instrumentation fades out and gets completely replaced by this amazing solo piano playing. It's just Anne riffing over the beatbox chords for a minute or so until the whole thing just fades out. And as it's fading out, you're like, no, I want it to keep going. I mean, lest anyone think that the Art of Noise were just a bunch of studio hacks without any musical skills, um, you know, there's this world-class piano performance tacked on to the end of what would otherwise be considered a novelty track. I mean, Anne, in my opinion, truly put the art into the Art of Noise. And I always figured I could listen to like a 10-minute version of just her playing this. And fortunately... A few years ago, she recorded an album of just that. It's called Anne Dudley Plays the Art of Noise. And so if you're like me and you wanted to hear more of, Ann, of Anne's piano playing after hearing Beatbox, this is your opportunity. So pick that baby up and give it a go. I bought it. Again, it's over on my shelf. I didn't bother grabbing it. I guess I stored it under Anne Dudley rather than the Art of Noise, so it wasn't in my stack of stuff. But anyway, check it out. Um, that's the album you've been waiting for. Then we go into Moments in Love. Uh, this is the remix that's usually labeled as Beaten on the singles. And in my mind, it is seven minutes of perfection. Uh, to me, it's the definitive version of this song. The intro is magnificent. The way the song evolves and develops is never boring. The production is immaculate. You can hear every reverb reflection, carefully timed. It is just amazing. And if you listen to just one Art of Noise track after hearing me go on and on about this, please make sure it's this track, the seven-minute version of Moments in Love, also called Moments in Love Beaten. Then we go into Close to the Edit. Uh, this is the third and final of the big three ZTT tracks. What more is there to say about this at this point? Not much. Um, so at this point, we get to the point in the Art of Noises history after they split from ZTT. So the story at the time was that Anne, Gary, and JJ would leave Trevor and Paul and would continue on their own. So the three of them would go on to sign with China Records and release their version of an Art of Noise album, and that was called Invisible Silence. And it would be another classic. It was still kind of experimental, but they conceded a bit. They conceded by becoming a bit less faceless, doing more interviews, and they started doing these commercially-minded cover versions, which I guess some of the fans viewed with distaste. Uh, and the next track on the best of was the first of these, it was uh, Peter Gunn, the twang mix. So, of course, this was a cover of the famous theme from the old Peter Gunn TV show. With the theme was written by the great Harry Manci Henry Mancini in 1958. And it was covered by the guitarist Dwayne Eddy soon after in 1959. So here, interestingly enough, uh, the Art of Noise brought in the actual Dwayne Eddy to, again, play this song on their remake with his signature twangy guitar sound, which he reportedly did in one take because he's an old school pro. 
and they even did a pretty conventional video for it, which the band didn't appear in, but it was pretty silly. Uh, But all in all, the song isn't terrible, but it's obviously not breaking the kind of ground they did on their earlier recordings. Um, The next track on the best of is a little thing called Paranoimia, and this is kind of a groovy, down-tempo song, again from Invisible Silence. Uh, This version features vocals by Max Headroom, who, for those not in the know, was sort of a a virtual reality character from the short-lived TV show of the same name and from endless ads for Coke, as I recall. Anyway, this was very much an 80s thing. And in reality, he wasn't virtual reality so much as an actor, Matt Frewer, in a bunch of prosthetics. But he was also known for a hilarious and disturbing incident of broadcast piracy. Uh, I encourage you to search YouTube for Max Headroom Television Hijack for some real nightmare fuel. But anyway, the original Paranoimia from Invisible Silence did not have Max uh, on it, but this 12-inch version on the Best Of does. And I, I guess it was a attempt at synergy The label's trying to boost record sales. I don't know. But the tune is pretty good. I kind of prefer the version without Max, but, you know, it is what it is. He's on here. That goes into the next track, which is Legacy. Uh, This is probably my favorite tune on the second side of this cassette. And what it is is a 12-inch remix of the song Legs from Invisible Silence which to me never sounded as good as Legacy. I prefer the 12-inch version. So this one really builds up nicely, uh, not unlike the version of Moments in Love on here. It has a really awesome bass line, and the drums and the bass really groove. The percussion is great, and I just like the whole thing. Again, we're getting away from cutting-edge sampling and getting more into something else. I don't know, maybe pop instrumental arrangement but whatever it is it really works in this song and that goes into dragnet 88 i mean every album has a mistake you know (laughs) what can i say and uh that's the mistake on this album i actually did see the dragnet movie in theaters when it came out back in the day and i remember them playing this theme song at ear splitting volume during the opening credits and in my memory that sounded pretty good. It sounded better than it does on this album. And, you know, that l- let's leave it at that, I guess. But this was off their second album from China Records, which was called In No Sense Nonsense. And this album is a personal favorite of mine. Um, I think it's the best of their China albums, and it's something I would like to talk about in the future. But again, they threw this, like, token, very commercial sort of crass cover song in the midst of what was otherwise a really interesting and experimental album. Why they did that, I don't know. I guess they were cashing in. So then we get into a one-off collaboration, which was Kiss, the AON mix uh, featuring Tom Jones. Who is Tom Jones? What do you mean, who is Tom Jones? Everybody knows who Tom Jones is. He was on The Simpsons. Don't you remember when he was forced to sing for Marge? Uh, Anyway, Tom Jones is one of my dad's favorite singers. And as a kid, I remember sitting down to hear him on vinyl doing songs like It's Not Unusual and Boney Maroney and Delilah. Uh, I guess you had to be young in the 70s really to see the appeal of those songs. I don't know. But this version actually works for me. And maybe because I love me some Prince And here, Tom Jones really does him justice. Um, Maybe it's because the song itself, apart from anything, is just a fantastic song. I mean, Prince could write some great tunes. And it's hard to suppress that fact that it's a great song (laughs) with arrangement and vocals. It's just a great song, and it shines through. So again, like Peter Gunn, not terrible, but not really breaking much new ground. No version of Kiss will ever surpass Prince's own, in my opinion. But this is a pretty fun version. Then it goes into uh, the final track, which is called 
something always happens. And this is sort of like a filler bit. Uh, it's maybe, maybe it's an after-dinner mint. Let's call it an after-dinner mint. But there's not a lot going on here. It's just a beat, a lady talking, and this vocoded voice kind of responding to her. And I think this track was exclusive to this best of, but I'm not 100% sure. And regardless, I can't imagine someone buying this album just for this one silly little song. It's just a bit of fluff. Anyway, that's the album. And why do I love it? Uh, I guess you can think of Best Of as the first of many Art of Noise compilations over the years. Uh, too many compilations, in fact. Uh, in my opinion, though, it's the most succinct and it's the only one that really covers the entirety of their 80s career without providing just endless rehashes of the big three tracks uh, and without providing millions and millions of stupid mixes. Um, I'll talk more about that in a bit, but I guess there's some debate over which Art of Noise incarnation was the best. Uh, was it the ZTT incarnation in the early 80s or the China incarnation or even what they did later around the turn of the century? Um, I like both of the early incarnations. I think the ZTT stuff is more epic and I think the China stuff had less to do with sampling but more to do with arranging, if that made sense. Uh, so the later China albums, like for instance this one, the third album, Below the Waist, would experiment with choirs, music concrete, uh, world music, and it would push some new boundaries, just not really boundaries with straight sampling. Uh, but folks would tend to focus on crap like Dragnet and their James Bond theme, which is on this record, and kind of skip the better, more interesting parts. There are a lot of really interesting little tracks on these China albums. Um, so yeah, it was all there. They were just selling out, you know, they were, let's face it, they were milking MTV, they were doing interviews, they were doing what they had to do to sell records, and who could really blame them? It was the 80s. <laughs> it was the age of greed, right? As Killing Joke would say. But yeah, I love these albums for what they are. Um, they're still better than, you know, 90% of 80s music, in my opinion. Um, and now that I think about it, it's weird that none of my friends were really into the art of noise. So it was strictly my own little trip, I think. Um, and another oddity was the fact that for many years, I only had cassettes of their stuff. And that made their stuff in particular pretty hard to listen to. So on an album like In No Sense Nonsense, uh, it, it has a ton of short tracks on it. And it was pretty difficult to know what the heck you were listening to at any point. So I'd ask myself, is this song owed to Don Jose, or is it nothing was going to stop them in anyway? I don't know. I just had no idea. The whole side of the album just segued seamlessly from one thing to another, and I couldn't tell what I was doing. But I did end up picking up these CDs, obviously. In fact, I think this CD, In No Sense Nonsense, was might have been one of the first things I ever bought on eBay like a million years ago, and I was so so pleased with myself that I could get this hard-to-find CD over the internet. Like, it was really life-changing. Bought a lot of crap over the internet after that. But I have this random memory of finding this album, In No Sense Nonsense, on vinyl at, of all places, my grandparents' house. And it was clearly my uncle's. And it was my uncle who got me into Rush. And he had moved out at that point decades prior, but I guess a few of his records were still stashed down in the basement. So if you're listening to this, Uncle C, uh, I still have that record along with About Face by David Gilmore, and they're still yours if you want them. <laughs> but props to you for listening to The Art of Noise back in the day. So let's talk about The Art of Noise's legacy. Uh, you know, obviously, they popularized sampling and demonstrated its real possibilities, not just embellishing live performance, but in creating whole new compositions. So they were sort of a novelty band in a way, and inevitably that approach became less relevant and meaningful as the rest of the industry caught up with using computers to make music. 
But for a while, they were the bleeding edge, and that's uh, that's notable. Uh, you even had to hand it to Paul Morley, which is something I don't say very often, because he did help them stay faceless by coming up with his strange marketing angle. And these days, it seems every electronic band tries to be faceless and mysterious. It's just a hell of a lot harder to do that in the days here of social media and everyone always having six cameras in their pocket. Uh, you know, the bottom line is mystery is really gone from music, folks. We know you're sampling everything. We know you've programmed all your instruments and don't know how to actually play anything. And we know you're just someone using Ableton in your basement. You're doing it. Everyone else is doing it. And really, none of it is that shocking or impressive. But the Art of Noise were the start of something new, uh, something that would go to the next level when Mars would have a hit record with Pump Up the Volume. And it would go to yet another level when the KLF would teach everyone to just sample shamelessly by stealing other people's music. <laughs> That's something... That happens today, for sure. You know, people are doing that all the time. Just grab some other music and throw some reverb and distortion on it and call it sound design, and you're good. I mean, you just have to make it different enough for Siri to not be able to place it, right? Anyway, um, another thing, for better or worse, that I think the Art of Noise contributed was what I refer to as endless remix culture. So... Even back in the days of ZTT, AON was a band that would put out hundreds of distinct releases. Now, when you look at it, they may have only ever really recorded five or six albums worth of tunes, but they put out about 50 albums worth of content. Hours and hours and hours of songs, right? Even back in the 80s. So how did they do this? They did that by endlessly scraping the barrel bottom for more unreleased studio outtakes and exclusive remixes, 99% of which were boring or just very slightly different versions of tracks they already released. So they popularized the use of parentheses to denote the remix name. So you'd see like Beatbox Diversion 1 and Beatbox Diversion 2 up to and including Beatbox Diversion 10. And of course you would want to collect them all as a fan of the band. And I can only imagine the budget that ZTT had to pull off that kind of silliness. And they were probably funded by sales of Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, when you think about it. But that unfortunate trend would reach a peak in the late 80s and early 90s, when labels would realize that releasing multiple versions of a single would all count to the same release in terms of the music charts. So they had an incentive to release endless collectible singles in dozens of formats, each with their own exclusive B-side or artwork or field recording of some band member taking a dump. So you had singles released in part one and part two, and then you had your limited edition 10-inch. I mean, give me a break. Uh, fortunately, Billboard and SoundScan changed the rules to discourage that kind of thing, and I think it hit Maybe an absurd peak when Depeche Mode released Songs of Faith and Devotion live when the original album started to flag. And it was just an obvious and pathetic cash grab. And, you know, this from an industry, remember, that was already milking customers for 20 bucks for a CD when each one cost them pennies to produce. I mean, we were just getting fleeced for many, many years. So, yeah, I went off about this in the Massive Attack episode. I'm not going to go off about it again. But yeah, the Art of Noise may have potentially sparked the crap remix fad by just releasing so many versions of their songs, especially in the, the 80s there. Uh, but then the, the crap remix fad hit a peak in the early 90s. And it was driven by this, this nonsense with the charts and splitting up releases. But it also became this thing where every single had to have 10 remixes by terrible DJs and people who did little more than just press play on their drum machines and loop these tiny bits of the original song over it. And these remixes were garbage. They had nothing to do with the original songs. There were hours and hours of these that every band in the early 90s was pumping out. And they were just a way for crap DJs to get name recognition. And New Order were very bad at this. I mean, look at any of their singles from the 90s. 
um, from the Republic era. They had tons of stupid, vapid remixes. Uh, the Blue Monday re-release comes to mind with its parts one and parts two. All the mixes sounding like just random beats, like nothing like Blue Monday. It was just garbage. And the Art of Noise were in on this too in the 90s. They released a bunch of remix albums with that crap. Uh, the phone mixes comes to mind. The drum and bass collection, the ambient collection. I don't know. I, I guess it hit a peak in 2006 when the Art of Noise released this four-disc box set of just the ZTT outtakes. It was called, And What Have You Done With My Body, God? And every single exclusive track sounds exactly like some track they already released, just with a new stupid name made up by Paul Morley to trick you into thinking it's new material. And it's clear that that box set was literally everything they ever put on a rehearsal tape. <laughs> and it's clear, too, that tracks like like Beatbox and Close to the Edit, which are masterpieces, were the result of endless hours of jamming, all of which is documented on this extremely tedious box set. So, yeah, thanks for that, Art of Noise, I guess. Um, so where are they now? Well, like I said, they had... The three albums from China, they had, where'd it go? Invisible Silence, In No Sense Nonsense, and Below the Waist. Um, Gary Langid would leave after Invisible Silence. So these two albums, In No Sense Nonsense and Below the Waist, were strictly just Anne and JJ. Um, then uh, all of that happened in the 80s, and then by 1990, they went on hiatus. And there would be a reunion in 1999 of sorts. Trevor, Ann, and Paul got back together and brought in Lol Krem, who was previously of the band's 10CC, as well as Godly and Krem. Uh, they made a new album as, the, as Art of Noise, not The Art of Noise, and this album was called The Seduction of Claude Debussy. And what this was was a concept album about Debussy at the turn of the 20th century, kind of making what they thought was a clever parallel with the turn of the millennium. And as an Art of Noise fan, I, I really wanted to like this record. I mean, I bought it. You can see here it's a, a two-CD set with this crazy fold-out case where it's packaged with uh, their CD for their single, which was called Metaphorce, and it had Rakim rapping on it. So some forward-thinking stuff here, kind of like mixing classical music with rap and techno and uh, this crazy sound that they cooked up. Was it really compelling? I, I don't know. I didn't think so, so much. Um, I even bought their exclusive CDR through their website. They had a bunch of ZTT outtakes. This was the first of these sort of collections of the old material, and it was really innovative at the time because it was all offered on the internet. Um, I bought a DVD of theirs around this time, which was called Into Vision, which featured them playing some of their old tunes to a crowd that frankly didn't really get them. And it, I'm surprised they released it as like a live uh, performance because it might be the worst crowd response ever. And one imagines what the crowd didn't like. Maybe they didn't like Paul Morley bouncing around the stage waving a hammer. I mean, it's hard to say. But for sure, Trevor Horn on bass and clarinet and Ann Dudley on keys were as amazing as ever. I dug that. Lol Krem, great guitarist. Um, frankly, I think the crowd just wanted to hear some smashing pumpkins because they were 20-something Gen Xers after all. What do you think they wanted? But yeah... This album spawned some number of releases and touring activity, and and then it petered out as everyone involved gradually realized they could be earning more doing other things. So that's The Seduction of Claude Debussy, which to me was kind of a meh album that led to a second hiatus and then a second reunion of sorts. So Gary and Anne and JJ reunited in 2017 for some live performances. JJ having retired by this time from being a stock trader. Um, 
I don't think they're technically using the Art of Noise name anymore, but yeah, they have three original members here, so it's pretty legit. And really, the original members, if you think about it, are Gary and JJ. They're the ones that thought this whole thing up. And Anne is just awesome, amazing musician. Uh, so yeah, she adds a ton to their sound and their live performances. So in these performances, they even drag the Fairlight back onto the stage, which is pretty cool. Although they have another fella helping run it who I haven't been able to figure out who that is exactly. Um, but I noticed JJ is mostly doing percussion and samples with a MIDI controller. Um, the funny thing about these performances that you can check out, of course, on YouTube is that the Fairlight guy looks a bit like JJ. So at a glance, there appears to be two of him on stage. And I would argue that maybe two JJs are better than one, you know, or maybe it's good that they have a backup JJ. I don't know. It's pretty funny. Check it out. They've definitely done, done some good performances now um, since 2017. They still seem to be at it. So where are they today? Uh, Ann Dudley, she won an Oscar for her score to The Full Monty, so is a tremendously successful composer and arranger. Uh, Trevor, needless to say, uh, immensely successful record producer. Paul Morley is a noted journalist and author. Gary Langan is a successful engineer, highly sought after. And J.J. Jenschelek, a successful producer and really a pioneer of sampling for the entire world. So thank you, J.J., for your contributions to sampling culture. Anyway, there you have it, kids. The album, The Best of the Art of Noise. If you enjoyed this, stick around because I'll be talking in this series about other 80s and 90s albums. This is a show that's called Stronger Than Reason, and we're available on YouTube and as a podcast where you do that podcast thing. And if you like what you heard, please like and subscribe. It helps other people find the show. I'm just one weird guy with an opinion, and I encourage you to leave your opinion as a comment below. If you made it this far, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, stay strong.